as Christians, what should our attitude be to the Word of God? That's the question and more we're going to look at today in the latest home Bible study in Hebrews, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. This is Andrew from Culloden Christian Assembly here, and we're going to look at it together with God's help. This is study number five in our series, and we trust you'll be blessed as you listen into the Word of God. So first things first, uh, thank you for joining us, and we trust you'll be blessed. We're going to ask God's blessing upon our, our short um, podcast together, and we trust that you'll be blessed as you look at this in more detail. Father, we come into thy presence in the name of the Lord Jesus. Help us as we look into the Word of God, that each one of us might go away particularly blessed as we understand this section better. In the Lord's name we ask. Amen. Okay, so um, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what we've been thinking of as we've been going through Hebrews. Um, we're on to study number five. Um, we have moved on to the one who is greater than Joshua. We're going to see Joshua as the man who, who brought them into the land of, of Canaan. Um, gave them some measure of rest in that land, but the rest that we find in Christ is far greater than that which is in Joshua. So um, we will look at that in a little more detail, but to pick it up from where we left off, we're going to go back into chapter 3 and read from verse number uh, 7. Uh, I think before we do anything else, what we'll do is just focus in on this first chapter uh, and touch on some subjects I think need to be covered uh, quite briefly. Hebrews 3, verse 7 to 19. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years, therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see, they could not enter in because of un belief. Okay, so this is chapter 3 and, and we've, we've traversed um, a number of important issues so far. We've seen Christ is greater than the prophets initially as he brings this revelation. He is not only the messenger as the prophets were, um, he is the message itself. Uh, the son uh, is the message that comes from uh, the father. Uh, we've seen that he is not only that but he is far greater than the prophets in another way they brought uh, a message that was fragmentary uh, and incomplete whereas he brings the complete message 
the word of God in that complete sense. He is the word of God, as other passages will say. You'll remember angels also were associated with the word of God. It mentions that in chapter 2, that the law was given by uh, angels or three angels. Angels were involved in the 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 law coming down from Sinai and so on when God gave the law to Moses and of course Moses was the third person who was involved in the transmitting of that law to the people you remember that he sprinkled the book and he sprinkled the people and and we know all that from Exodus um, chapter 24 and so on however when we think of all these things it's helpful to remember that he's going to move on to a practical section now um He's going to pick up this idea of the comparison between Moses and Christ that we looked at in the last study. And now what he's going to do is say, listen, as Moses brought the word of God to the people, so Christ has done that. However, he's going to lift the whole wilderness experience and the going into the land experience and bring a picture out of that, a parallel out of that, if you wish, um, of, of the rebellion that was back in the wilderness and of how... God had to move in judgment, even though these professed people were, or these people were professedly following God. They, they, they had come out of Egypt. They had aligned themselves with the true God. However, they had not fully, um, had not fully trusted God. They had not fully um, laid hold on the promises that God had given in in His Word. Now, it's important we understand that, and uh, because. We will see that the reason that they don't come into blessing is because when the message, the good news came to them, they did not respond in faith. Now, when we think of the gospel today, the message of, of Christianity today, the gospel comes that there is rest to be found in Christ. Salvation rest. The, the gospel comes which says that, that if we respond to God's word and we trust God's word and we lay hold on that rest and trust in Christ, we enter into the rest that's in Christ. So there's a parallel message, if you like. There was a good news came to them and a good news that came uh, to us. He's going to mention this at the top of chapter 4. Look at that just for a second. He says, um, for indeed the gospel, the good news, was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. So the message came to these children of Israel as they were in the desert, a message of the fact that God had a promised land that he was going to give to anyone who laid hold on him, who trusted in the Lord, uh, and they would come into the land. However, they came to Kadesh Barnea, and we'll think about that later on. You remember the 12 spies? They went out, and they came back with a report, and the good news was there, and they refused to trust God. They refused. They they. They had come so far and now they were going to turn back. Turn back to Egypt. Turn back to their old way of life. And because of that, God said, listen, you're never going to enter into my rest. That generation who came out of that generation, the whole generation, apart from Joshua and Caleb, did not enter into the land. And he's drawing this great parallel. Um, if you have the handout, um, which you can get on um, most of the podcast websites... If you have the handout, you'll notice appendix number one at the back. And what I've tried to do is just put this in, in diagrammatic form. Um, you can look at it in your own time. The word of God for both of them was delivered. In the case of one, the word of God was delivered uh, by Moses, who was, in that sense, sent from God. The angels were involved and the word of God was delivered. On the other side, we have Christ, 
um, the apostle and high priest he's spoken of in chapter 3 and and he delivers this message um, you read about it in the first few chapters uh, he's delivering it to the, the people of God the, the professed people of God the professed house of God you might say he, he's spoken about that at the start of chapter 3 as well but the response by the people sadly in the Old Testament was unbelief and that brought upon them God's judgment now he, the 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 writer to the Hebrews is worried that that very same thing is going to happen to the children of Israel, um, or sorry, I should say, to the Hebrew Christians. Those who have lined themselves up externally with Christianity, they have come out, they have, as it were, they have come out of Egypt, not Egypt, but they've come out of Judaism, Judaism that um, crucified Christ and put him on a, uh, to an open shame. They, they, have, they have disassociated with it, and perhaps they have entered into some kind of mental appreciation of Christ. They have lined themselves up with Christ, but they have not truly trusted in Christ. And so the message is hanging in the air. They're kind of like in that place of urgently needing to commit to Christ, but they have not quite done it yet. And the danger is that they know the truth now. The danger is that they're going to turn away from all they know to be true. And because of social pressures and because of persecution pressures, they're going to go back to Judaism and say Christ, in effect, is a fraud. They're going to say they're going to trample underfoot the Son of God, some of them, potentially. And so this is why there's such urgency in the Hebrew uh, uh, writer's mind. Here he is, he's writing to these, 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 many of them that he believes are Christians. He says, you know, he's persuaded better things of them, things that accompany salvation. He, He believes that most of them are genuine believers in Christ, but he's just worried because there's just that stagnant say and 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 they haven't moved past that particular point where they haven't uh, outwardly um, disassociated entirely from the nation and so he's setting before them the greatness the wonder the beauty of what they have in Christ um, and and how that everything that they had in Judaism was just a type of something greater in Christ so that's where he's at um, now, now I think if you look at page number one I just mentioned a couple of things before we try to run through this argument that that runs um, uh, through these two two chapters you'll notice firstly that I put in page number one um, those that have true salvation cannot be lost um, it's worth noting that that some would try to suggest that this passage along with chapter six and so on um, that 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 somehow you can be a believer, a true believer in Christ. You can rest in Christ for your eternal salvation. Then at another stage later on, you can unrest. You can unbelief. You can reality can become unreality. Eternal salvation can lose its eternality and just become a short temporal thing that you had when um, you were um, in Christ, as it were. That somehow you can be no longer part of the body of Christ if you're in it, no longer part of the building of Christ, that somehow you can lose your salvation. Now that's against the whole tenor of New Testament teaching. The danger with this thinking is that that we could slip into a works-based system of approval. Um, To gain, you know, obviously, we know that that would be wrong to gain salvation initially. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It tells us... um, it's the gift of God, Ephesians 2 and verse number 8. However, a works-based system for approval in keeping or developing our salvation is also um, almost as bad. And so we look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. You can take a look at that, where they had begun in the Spirit, but they were now trying to be made perfect in the flesh. And so so that idea that that that, that salvation can be lost is against 
um, many, many scriptures, but we'll just mention a couple quickly at this point. The whole Trinity is involved in keeping the true child of God. They have rested on him. They have trusted him. They have trusted and entrusted their soul to Christ. And, and so Christ says in, in John chapter uh, 10 and verse 28, he says um, that the person, uh, that my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. So, so there's no thought that a believer in Christ can perish. They're in Christ's hands. And he goes further, he says, my father that gave them to me is greater than all and no one is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. They're not only in the hand of, of, of Christ, but they're in the hands of the father. Uh, I and my father are one. No one can pluck us from the, the father's hand. He says more, but however, in Ephesians chapter um, 1, we read that Paul writes this. He says that... Um, Upon believing, uh, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's the Holy Spirit of promise. So, so um, he'll speak about it as the earnest, like a, a down payment, like a, an engagement ring some people have suggested, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The reason why we're going to have an inheritance, well, we've, we've been indwelt by the Spirit of God, and God will see to it, uh, through his spirit that that we will enter into the blessings of those of that salvation. So those with true salvation can't be lost. Now you look at a passage like this and it, it speaks about those who can like stumble, who fall away from the living God and so on and so forth. Uh, what's that speaking about then if those who have true salvation can't be lost? Uh, I think it's really important that we understand that what we have here is a warning uh, for any with an unbelieving heart that is among God's people. Um, you know, he speaks generally to the true, generally to believers in Christ, but he throws these warnings in as he's going through the Hebrews. Um, number two, I've put in the handout, it says this, false profession is an empty hope. And, and this is really where he, he has to get to. You, you remember last time, if you go into the last podcast, the last bit of it, uh, I was mentioning the two ifs in chapter three. Uh, and and what, what we... And I'll not go over it again for the sake of time. But what we say there was, was more or less that continuance is the proof of reality. Um, so something might initially and externally look like the real thing, but it might not be real. Um, you'll remember the Lord Jesus spoke about the sower going out to sow. And, and he speaks about the four soils that it fell into. And some fell in good ground and some fell in um, stony ground. Some fell among thorns and so on. Um, you'll remember he said about... One of those types, he says that with joy they received the word, uh, but only endured for a while, and then they stumbled. Um, and then in another one, he, he mentions the difference between two types of receiving. A gen general receiving of the word, oh yes, that's true, and, and a receiving to yourself. You can contrast Mark chapter 4 verse 15 and Mark chapter 4 verse 20 here. Different words are used for receive. So 420 has the idea of admitting or receiving near. Um, he speaks of another uh, soil that has no roots in themselves. So there's a sense in which we can outwardly accept the claims of the gospel. We can align ourselves with, with Christianity without actually having trusted Christ for salvation. Um, in John's gospel we even read that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. That's John chapter 2 verse 23. Um, and, so, and so there's a sense in which you say, wow, here is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and someone's believing in his name. And, and, and he's not committing himself to them. And why, why is that? He says he knew what was in them. 
perhaps they just had an intellectual assent to, oh yes, he must be a miracle worker, or perhaps they just thought that um, that that mental assent without any commitment what was what was intended by belief. But of course, when when we come to belief in the scriptural sense of it, is it's a trusting in Christ. It's not just a believing about Christ. It's a trusting in Christ. So. So anyway, there's more, much more can be said. You'll look at the handout, you'll see a few more things there. And we're going to come to the actual argument of the epistle just now. Hebrews 3 verse 7 to 19 um, really brings out a picture of the rebellion in the wilderness. Do you remember um, Kadesh Barnean? I've, I've put a little picture of, of Kadesh uh, at the bottom of the uh, revised handout uh, that's on the, on the web. Um, yeah, so, so this thought here of back in wilderness days, when they were taken out, or they came out more accurately, out of Egypt, they associated with, with the Lord, they, they disassociated with what was wrong in Egypt, and they were coming across the, the, the land, and they were traveling towards Canaan. And just like that, people, there are people among them that are traveling towards Christ. They're coming to the very verge, the edge, as it were, of resting in Christ. And here these people were coming to the edge of resting in, in Canaan. And, and so he says, and, and this is the writer in, in Psalm speaking maybe a thousand years after this or so. Um, he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. Um, you'll notice Meribah and Massa. Those are the words rebellion and trial, but we'll, we'll not stop at that. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament reference to that in Psalm 95 and verse 8. Um, where your fathers tested me, tried me, saw my works uh, for 40 years, uh, and for, I was angry uh, with that generation and said, they go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways, so I swore, swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is a very solemn passage. And what he's doing here is, first of all, he's giving us this quotation from Psalm 95, which reflects backward to the wilderness journey. Okay, so let's just think about it for a minute. Uh, we'll not pick too much out at this time because I it is developed by the writer to the Hebrews himself. But you'll notice this. You'll notice that um, it's today, if we, you will hear his voice. So sometime in the Psalms, a thousand years later, the message was still going out. Today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Like they did in the past, a thousand years before. Um, and now here we are a thousand years farther on. And he's quoting it to these first century Hebrew uh, Christians. He's saying, today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Now, you'll notice this is all about the word of God. Now, before we got into this section, we noticed that it was about Christ and his high priesthood. And he's going to come back to that at the end of this section. But just in this whole section, he's going to deal with the word of God. Today, if you will hear his voice, the Holy Spirit is speaking. You come to the end of this, at the end of chapter 4, because they're one unit. Um, what you'll see there is... Um, for, at the end of this, he'd say, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, and so on. So, so this is the way he's going to develop it. First of all, he's going to look at the picture of the rebellion in, in, in chapter 3. We're doing that now. Then he's going to look at, in chapter 4 at the start at the promise of rest. What does that really mean? And then he's going to, well, throughout it, he's going to look at the principle of faith. No matter where you're looking at it, you're seeing faith. And it's being contrasted with unbelief. And unbelief is lined up with disobedience. It's lined up with sinning. 
It's lined up with uh, being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And all these are ways of saying that they refuse to believe God. Now you say, well, is unbelief that serious? Well, it is. Imagine if you've been married for a long time and you, your person is, uh, your, your, your wife or husband is, is, is like, um, completely trustworthy and you were, they were to tell you something and you were just saying, I don't believe you. You think how hurtful it would be for that relationship. Now, the eternally trustworthy God has spoken. He has said, he has given evidences. Um, we don't have time to go into, into them all, but he's given evidences as to his trustworthiness, to his truthfulness. And, and for people to say, listen, we just don't believe you is completely detrimental to ever having a relationship with the living God. And so, first of all, there's this quotation from the past, verse 7 to 9. Then we have the application for the present. Look at verse number 12 to 19. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, you might notice that I, I say that I really struggled. Um, if you look at the handout, I, I struggle with the idea that, that these believers are, are these Hebrews are all true believers in Christ. There are statements that are made here that are indicative of those who do not believe. In fact, it says unbelief on several occasions. The message came to them and they did not respond to it. So so here we have outward profession. Um, and, and the danger is that among those who are true Christians, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from. In fact, that's the word where we get our word apostasy. In departing from the living uh, God. In other words, they've come so far, they've understood so much, they've, they're associated with the Christians, they're going along with them, but in their heart of hearts, they have not committed themselves to Christ. They're not truly on board. Uh, and it's a dangerous position to be in. But exhort one another daily. In other words, we should be preaching the gospel one to another. We should be uh, te teaching the truths about Christ. We should be affirming our own solid commitment to Christ. While it is called today, lest there be in any of you, any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, the old uh, preachers used to speak about the fact that, uh, um, you know, if you listen to the gospel, there's a danger if you don't respond to it, that you become hardened. And that's really what we have here. The idea that they're standing and looking at the light and, and there's a danger that they will close their eyes because they've got used to the light. They will close their eyes and turn away from the light. And they'll become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives individuals. It deceives them into thinking in a wrong way about God and about Christ. So he's worried about this. For then he says, we have become partakers of Christ. You say, just stop there for a minute. What does that mean? He says, we have become partakers of Christ. That's the idea of being permanently involved, sharing with Christ. He says, well, you say, well, that's lovely. And then he says, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. In other words, continuance proves reality. Uh, you know, for, you know, Andrew, for Andrew Williamson to turn around and deny the deity of Christ or to deny um, the, the, the character of the Lord Jesus as revealed in Scripture in, in a major way or to deny um, the reality of these things. And I'm not meaning people can't have doubts, but to, to willfully and, and, and um, denounce uh, Christ and say he is an imposter 
only would prove that Andrew Williamson never had the real thing, no matter what Andrew Williamson thought. Okay, so, so here we have, we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, doesn't mean you don't have ups and downs in the journey. It doesn't mean there, there's days when you have great faith and other days when you have weak faith. What it does mean is that the kernel of the whole issue is settled. You know whom you've believed and you're persuaded that he's able to keep. And so um, there's a danger that there are some that will just turn and flip right back to Judaism and and therefore deny Christ, his place as Messiah, the Lord Jesus as the, his place as Messiah, deny the Son of God being who he claims to be. Uh, and so that's the that would only prove that they were never partakers of Christ. So so here what he's doing is he's warning those not to think that they are truly partakers of Christ if they go back to Judaism. They can't have both. Um, you either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved, or you refuse to believe and 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 you're not saved. Uh, to put it in John three thirty six terms, you you either believe on the Son and have eternal life, or you refuse to believe the Son. Or to put it um, perhaps more accurately, you disobey the Son. Uh, and so, so he's going to bring out this idea that it's a willful disobedience and to go back is to, is to prove there's no reality. So it, he says, while it is, is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then he's going to speak about this rebellion for a minute. For who having heard rebelled? Now, the authorised version, the, the KJV, I think is a bit confusing here. Uh, it's a lot clearer if you lose, use one of the um, other versions such as the New King James or the ESV. This is what it says here. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? In other words, the whole generation. Yeah, they came out of Mo- they came out of Egypt. You say, well, they're they're trusting the Lord. Well, it looked initially like they were trusting the Lord. Their feet claimed to be trusting the Lord, but however, in their hearts, there was still this rebellion. And not only was there still this rebellion, but it manifests itself when it come, when they come near to the land of Canaan that they don't truly believe the Lord's going to bring them in. They, they don't truly commit to the Lord. They don't enter the rest of Canaan um, at all. Uh, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose corpses fell in the wilderness? That's a reference back to Numbers 14. Look at Numbers 14, by the way. It helps put this in context. And to whom did he swear that he, they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So, he's going to mention this rest in more detail in the next chapter. But he's, what he's saying here is, um, it was those who were disobedient. Now, he's lining, he's lining up unbelief with disobedience. Disobedience involves uh, not bowing the will to Christ, uh, refusing to believe, if you like, um, and of course, the contrast to that is the obedience of faith. This is Romans chapter uh, 1. We mentioned John chapter three thirty six That brings us out as well. So obedience is linked to belief. Disobedience is linked to unbelief. Um, the will is involved as well as the intellect. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, this is what he's going to sum up. He's saying, listen, these people, they never got into the land they never entered into the promised rest. Why was that? Well, it was because they never exercised true faith. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe the word that came to them. 
That's how solemn it is. Disbelieving the word of God. Okay, so that's the picture of rebellion in the wilderness. What about the promise of rest? Chapter 4 and verse number 1 uh, to 11 or, or maybe a little further. Let's read the chapter together. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed the, the gospel was preached, or the good news was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Be very clear that it's we who have believed, we enter that rest. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, you shall not enter my rest. In other words, he flips it on the other side. Those who didn't believe didn't enter. Those who did believe did enter. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he who spoke in a certain place of seventh, the seventh day in this way, and God rests in the seventh day from his works, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since it therefore remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designated a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, this is really developing the, the, the quotation from uh, Psalm 95. Look at verse number 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, this is the Old Testament Joshua, uh, the authorised version says Jesus, which it can be a little bit confusing, um, but it's Joshua, it's Hebrew Joshua, uh, had given him rest. He, then he, God, would not afterwards have spoken of another day. The today that was later on. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. A keeping of Sabbath. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. Lest any of you fall according to the same example of disobedience. We'll just leave it at verse number 11 for now and we'll think about it for a few minutes. Now this argument is quite complex here. Um, it's one of the most complex arguments um, in Hebrews really in some ways. Um, so what I want to do is just break it down and take the main points out of this argument. Having spoken about the, the, the picture of the rebellion and so on, now he deals with the promise of rest. You'll notice that at the beginning. Uh, there's a promise to, of entering in to his rest and um, the promised land we we listen to that expression the promised uh, land from time to time um so so we have this parallel the gospel was preached to us as well as to them the good news came to them and the good news ran something like this um if you take my word believe my word you will enter into canaan and find rest and so trusting in the word of God, laying hold of the word of God and, 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 and then resting uh, in Canaan was, was what God promised. However, God said, listen, these people have not trusted my word. They have turned away from me. They have rebelled. They have disobeyed. Um, and, and so they can never enter into the rest in Canaan. That was the message, more or less, that came to the ancient people of Israel in this particular uh, time period. They had pointed themselves toward that promised land. They, they were nearly there. They were right on the border. They were at Kirish Barnea. You remember the, the, the spies went out and you, you remember the children's song, 12 men went to spy in Canaan. And well, there they were, 
just on the very, very verge of moving into the land, and they heard about the giants, great and tall, and, and, and they heard about all these different things, and, and then they turn back at that last minute. They say, no, we don't believe God. We want to go back to Egypt, and they appointed a leader to take them back to Egypt, and they rejected God for the final time, and they say, no, we don't believe. We don't believe that you will take us in. Even though you promised to take us in, even though you've brought us this far, we, we are, the, the evil heart of unbelief was still there. And, and they wouldn't accept and enter into that rest. They wouldn't accept the word of God and enter the rest. And, and so the parallel is this. These people have heard of Christ. They have come out of Judaism, as it were. They, they have made a mental ascent that they agree that this is the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, they've gone along the journey in a sense, a certain distance, but they have never truly committed to Christ. They have never found the rest that is in Christ. They have never responded to the gospel in its fullest sense. They have, they're kind of going along among the true believers, but they have not committed themselves to Christ. They have never trusted Christ. And so then the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. In other words, the response of faith was not seen. Now, um, if you look uh, at some of the other uh, translations here, um, you will find if you go to the um, English Standard Version, for instance, it puts it like this in chapter 4, verse number 2. Um, for the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because, this is a slightly different way of translating it, they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so there were two who listened, um, Joshua and Caleb, but they weren't united with those people. The whole of the rest of the generation was not united with them. They, the, the whole of that generation, over 20 years old uh, of the meals, were not going to enter into the rest because they never... They never lined themselves up with those who did accept the word of God. And, and so it's incredibly solemn. He says there's a danger that that kind of attitude can be yours. Because he says, and he goes on and he says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. Now you may say, well, well what rest is he speaking about here? The rest, I believe, that's in Christ. You say, is that a future rest or a present rest? I think that's the wrong question to ask. What I mean by this is I think there's a present rest that takes us right out into the future. So yes, I think there's a present side of this rest. And I think that comes out in verse number one, the idea that, that there's less, let us fear lest some seem to come short of it. How could you know someone is seeming to come short of the rest that's in Christ? We'll see that maybe by the end. And one of the verses further down again uh, brings this out. So I think there's a, a sense in which we enter the rest. The moment, the moment we're saved, uh, we enter into rest in Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Uh, Come unto me, all that labour and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Christ says we enter into rest in Him. That's a general sense in which we we lay down our burdens at Christ and we come into the rest that He has for us. But this is God's rest. God is resting as well. We're going to see that, and we can enter into His rest and. And that's what happens when we're saved too, because God has finished a work and, and he wants us to rest where he's resting in that work. But we'll come back to that in a minute. So what can we learn from these, these quite complex verses from um, you know, the middle of this section? Number one, we can learn that of the entrance into rest. It's by faith. We've already learned that. Uh, we who have believed 
not will enter into rest, but do enter into rest. It's the logical following it to uh, belief. You, you, you trust and you do enter into rest. As he said, and he gives a quotation again, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So in other words, just as he says about the unbelievers that they not enter rest, the corollary is true, those who do believe do enter. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does he mean by that? Well, you'll notice he speaks about God's rest as my rest. So the first thing we notice is that um, the rest um, is entered by faith. So the entrance to the rest. We're not going to see the availability of this rest across time and space and history. This is beautiful. Um, because what he's doing is he's going to take us backwards to right the beginning of, of time, as it were, when, when in the seventh day God rested after the six days of creation. And he says, verse number seven, he's spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, and this way God rested in the seventh day from all his works. What he's saying is that way back then, that was when God rested. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. So there's a sense in which God's rest is now available still for others. God's rest. And then he says in verse number 6, Since therefore it remains that some must enter in, those who, to whom it was first preached did not enter in because of disobedience. So he's spanning 2,000 years here, or 3,000 years really. He go, he's going backwards. Actually a wee bit more than that. He's going backwards um, thousands of years to, to, to creation. Uh, and, and, and he's saying, listen, God rested. And then he's saying, Years and years later, thousands of years later, God told them about this rest they could enter into. And then, a thousand years after that, in, in David, in, in the Psalms, God mentions this rest, his rest again. And, and now he's going to speak to them, these people, and he's going to mention this rest. So, so God's rest, as it were, runs and is available for anyone to enter into by faith. Salvation rest uh, with God and in what God has done. In the work that God has accomplished. We'll think about that a little bit more. So the first thing is the entrance to the rest. Then the availability of the rest. This takes us right down to verse number 9. For he says, if Joshua had given them rest. Joshua's rest was just a little picture. Um, it was a picture of the rest of God, which was far deeper. Joshua didn't, in that sense, give them that true eternal rest. If, God, if Joshua had given them rest... God wouldn't have spoken again a thousand years later about the rest that was available. You can now enter into rest, he said in the Psalms. For he who has entered into his rest, he says then, has ceased from his works. This is going to bring us on to the third point. Not only is the rest entered in by faith, is the rest available today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So if there's someone listening to this and you don't know Christ and you've never trusted in Christ, let me tell you this, that there is a rest that you can find in him, God's rest. God has rested in the work that he has done through Christ. God has rested in Christ He's, uh, and now we can enter into that rest and enter into the blessing of it by faith, by believing the word of God. So today, today in twenty. 20 when I'm, I'm recording this and whenever you're listening to it today if you will hear his voice don't harden your heart because this rest that's entered by trusting God's word and accepting God's way uh, is still available but then he says 
um, he tells us about the nature of that rest. Look closely at verse number 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Now he's summing, summing up what he said. He's saying this available rest is still there. It's available for the people of God. You're saying, what does it mean? Well, this word for rest is slightly different. There remains, therefore, a keeping of Sabbath. It takes us back to verse number four when he speaks about the seventh day, the rest of the seventh day. And this is telling us about the nature of this rest of God. Not only is it a rest that's available for us to enter in through faith, not only only is it um, entered by faith, but also it's a rest that involves a ceasing from our own activity. Now this is key, I think. The nature of this rest is a Sabbath rest. Look at verse number 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. When we enter into God's work, God's rest, what we're saying is that we can't do anything. God has done the work. When we come to the cross and realize that God through Christ is reconciling the world unto himself, when we come to the cross and hear the words of Christ saying, it is finished, when we seek God raising his son from the dead and and, and bringing him back to glory and, and saying that this is the way whereby people can be reconciled to God. When we hear that, this message and we accept it, we're really entering into God's rest. The rest that God um, has provided through finishing the work, not only of creation, but of redemption. And therefore, they cease from their own works. We cease from our works. The person who's still trying to work their way to heaven has never entered into the rest of God. And this would be very obvious to uh, Hebrew believers because they came from a religious background. They, they would see some people that, that don't seem to have grasped hold of the fact that, that Christ has done the work, that God has completed the work. And because of that, all they need to do is rest in God. And so therefore, he says, this type of rest is a, a keeping of the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath keeping. So I think when when he mentions about the keeping of the Sabbath uh, in verse number 9, that's a better translation for it. I really think he's speaking about the character of the rest, not that he's speaking about the the future rest necessarily um, that goes on into eternal state. We know that that keeping of Sabbath that we enter into now, when we rest from any salvation works, any any works that we can do to merit favour with God, That will carry on into eternity and eternally we will rest with God in the finished work of Christ. Enjoying the benefits of it in the eternal rest of God. And he will rest in his love to use another uh, lovely expression from the Bible. Verse number 11. Here's the warning attached to it. He's mentioned about the... The entrance into the rest by faith. He's mentioned the availability right now of this rest. He said the nature of this rest is a ceasing from works, as God did from his. But now he says, now listen. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's saying, he's, he's speaking to this collective groups of professing Christians and every time through history we've had a collective group of professing people 
there tends to be those that are just hanging on. And so he says, listen, you strive to enter into this rest. Now, this is why I don't think it's merely future. I don't think we should be spending our life striving to look forward to heaven and striving to enter the rest in that sense. No, no. what he's saying is this. He's saying you can enter into a sphere where you're ceased from your works, as God has from his, where you're accepting what God has done and where you're resting where God has rested. Let us be diligent, strive to use ESV, uh, to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same uh, example of disobedience. Lest you stand on the borders of Kadesh Barnea like those people and you look upon the land and you see the beauty of what's in Christ and instead of entering into that beauty, they were just like that. They were just on the edge. They could see what the true believers were enjoying. The danger is that they would turn away. This should make us really solemn as, as, as Christians, believers, and when we, we, when we speak to people, that we do, we are willing to bring them to that point where they will commit themselves to the Lord Jesus, where they will trust in Christ. Sometimes we want to put hands off in these things, and we have to. It is God's work, after all. But there's another sense in which we must impress on people that it's not good enough to just be associated with Christians. It's a dangerous place just to call yourself a Christian, but never rest where God has rested in Christ. So finally, uh, we're going to just look for a few minutes at, at verse number 12 and 13. You can see what divides this whole company then. Between those who are believing in the word of God and those who perhaps in their hearts, where no one is looking, have not really committed themselves to the word of God and and have not really rested in Christ. So he says in verse number 12 and verse number 13, I'll read it now. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a critic or discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, the God of the word. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. What is he saying here? Well, if we've had this picture of rebellion and the promise of rest and this principle of faith that has just run through the whole passage, he's going to speak now about the power and piercing nature of the word. He said, listen, the word is what discriminates. The word is what discerns. The word is what divides. It's how I respond to the word of God. That's the gospel, isn't it? You know, we, st- we tell people that there's really only one division among people when, when we're speaking to them about the truth of the gospel of Christ. They're either on board or they're not on board. They might come into this kind of grey category where they say they're on board, but what they say is not what's important. It's what is important is, is really whether their heart is aligned and attuned to heaven. If they have mixed that message with faith if they've united uh, by faith with those who are truly on board those who truly listen and so here he says at the end he he says I've just taken something I've plucked it from a thousand years ago he says from this time of the Psalms and and it was speaking about something that was a thousand years previous to that in in the wilderness and now I've brought it bang up to date he says, the word of God is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it divides. The word of God is what will judge. 
It, it pierces between soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It is a critic, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He's bringing it down into the person's heart who is perhaps sitting in that company and listening. Listening to these things and thinking, I don't really, I'm not really on board with this yet. I've never really committed myself to Christ. I've never really believed God's word. And he's saying, listen, it's not enough. Remember how important the word of God really is. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, he says, the God of the word. All things are naked and open to the eyes with whom we must all give an account. So he's bringing this solemn section to an end. He's going to go on at the very end to bring us back. To bring us back to the real purpose. This has been, a, as it were, a, a, a side uh, issue in the big issue. He's coming back to the person of Christ as our great high priest. And as he comes to the end of it, he says, Now, do, you believers, don't, don't be worrying about this. There's a danger you look at this and say, well, I'm, I'm weak in my faith and I, I really don't, I'm not what I should be. And, and he says, no, since we have a great high priest and he's gone right into the immediate presence of God for us, he's passed through the heavens just the way the high priest of old passed through the veil and, and went into that inner chamber and he was there representing uh, the children of Israel before God. So he says, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus. The true man, Jesus, the Son of God. That's chapter one, chapter two and chapter one, isn't it? The humanity, the true real humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus. And he says, let us hold fast our profession. Let's lay hold on him and all our weakness and all the, the pressures that come our way. And if we're true, that's what we'll do. He says, for we have not a high priest who's not unable to sympathize. Um, we have one who, who in every respect has been tested as we are, as tempted as we are. In every, every sphere of humanity, he has been pushed to the limit, as it were. And he has felt that. And yet it's been sin apart. It's been without sin. And not only has it been without sin in, in the sense of he hasn't sinned, but um, the whole of his trials is sin apart. There's nothing in him that could respond to sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's not, a, it's not just a throne of judgment. For us believers, we come to a throne of grace where God's grace is greater than all our failure. And so we need to avail ourselves, not only of the word of God and trusting it, but of the, the Christ of God who's in God's presence for us, our great high priest, our advocate, to use John's language, with the Father. Um, and we have to come to this throne of grace. Now, I'm sorry for that to be uh, being such a long podcast. Um, it necess necessarily was. Um, I'll not say anything more. There's a little bit more in the handout if you want to look at it. Um, we'll leave it there. Thank you uh, for your time. And we trust it will be a blessing to you. Take care. God bless.